I have something to say today, and that's this. Jesus is wonderful. He really is. Also, Jesus is unique. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, never forget that when you speak of other religions, you have to use a certain kind of verb. You have to use a verb in the past tense. You have to use verbs that end in ED. You can say, Muhammad lived. You can say, Muhammad walked. You can say whatever you want about Buddha and what he did in the past tense. But when it comes to Jesus, the one who is wonderful, the one who is unique, of necessity, you will need to change the verb. No longer will you use a verb in the past tense that ends with an ed. You will need to use the present tense verb that ends in s because when you speak the truth about this wonderful and unique Jesus, you will have to say, Jesus lives. He walks with me and he talks with me. He heals. Jesus saves. Jesus delivers. And Jesus answers prayer. That's because he's alive today and that is our wonderful Jesus. Can anyone say amen to that? We sing, he came from heaven to earth to show the way. That's Christmas. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. That's Calvary. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, that's the completed work of Christ. So, Lord, I lift your name on high. Is there anyone in the house today that wants to lift up the name of Jesus and exalt him? Blessed be his name, the name of Jesus forever. I want to say clearly on this, what we would probably refer to as Christmas Sunday, oh yes, I'm glad he came to earth, but let's be clear about it. He came to die. And everything, hear me clearly, everything that is said behind this pulpit must point to the cross of Christ. Anything that we might ever say that is not firmly rooted in the cross of Christ will lead people astray. As we celebrate Christmas this week and as you are gathered with your families, I, I pray that you will keep into your focus uh, the entire work of Christ and His coming as the, as the baby was simply just the beginning. Yes, this, that is that which we celebrate at this time. But without a doubt, Jesus is unique, and He was unique even from the very beginning. So we're going to go to Matthew's Gospel today, if you have your Bible. Because I want us to look at what a stir he created, even as a baby, which is yet another sign that he is unique. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, starting right with verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, I want you to see the stir that I speak of that was taking place here as we start to read verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed. He wasn't kind of disturbed. He was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as as was everyone in Jerusalem. Notice the stirring there taking place. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked them, 
Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And I want you to notice something with me right here in this part of the passage, that these leading priests and the teachers of religious law obviously knew the answer to the question for Herod. In verse 5, they say, oh, he says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, because that's what the prophet wrote. Some of you who have a Bible that will have uh, verse 6, that's we're going to read now in all capital letters. That's an indication that you are reading something from the Old Testament that is now in the New. It's a reference in the New, in the New Testament. It's a reference from something from the Old Testament. You'll find that sometimes in the book of Hebrews or Romans or Galatians. Sometimes you'll also see where Jesus is quoting Isaiah. It will be in all caps or possibly italics or some other way of being notated in your Bible. That's what that's about. It's referring to something in the Old Testament. So here you have this word of prophecy from the book of Micah that is being quoted here in the New Testament by the priests and the teachers. Verse 6 says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. This is one of hundreds of prophecies of the coming Messiah, Jesus, that was given. Verse 7, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. And of course, we know that was not his plan at all. He wasn't, had no intention of going to worship the Christ child. Uh, he had uh, every intention to plot to kill him, and that's what he was doing. Verse 9, after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, we used to sing, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy. They were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. You know, folks, we read the Christmas story year after year, and I, I think it's, it's true for all of us that so much of it just almost slides over us. Uh, we're so used to hearing it, and it's, the words almost are so ingrained in us that we just accept it as much as anything because it's so deeply rooted in our culture. It's certainly rooted in our Christian culture, and clearly it even has expression in our secular culture. But on a day like today, it's just us here. I think it's okay to let's ask some questions and maybe dig a little deeper and see if there's even greater significance for us in this very familiar Christmas story. I think it's possible we'll find something we've not seen before, just as Bobby referenced a while ago. You keep digging in the Word of God, and it's layer upon layer upon layer. There's new truths to, to discover. Aren't you thankful for that in the Word of God? So in this scenario, then, the wise men reached Bethlehem. 
Now, this is going to mess with some of your thinking, because if you've believed a traditional uh, thought about this, you may be disturbed about this, but it's evident from, from Scripture, from what we read here, that the wise men actually arrived somewhere around two years later after the birth of Christ. So let's ask some questions. How do we know this? What makes us believe it? Well, we know this because of what we just read in Scripture, in the text. We know this because Mary and Joseph and the baby were now in a house. They were no longer in the stable. They have changed locations. They've moved somewhere else. We also know this because of what the, what's, well, the clue that's in the text that we read, because Herod's intention was to kill the Christ child, this baby. And notice what he was doing, trying to be crafty about it. He was specific in finding out the exact time that the star had appeared over Bethlehem to determine as best he could what was the actual time of the birth of the child. And then note his plan or his plot about all of this was then to have all of the male children two years of age and under killed. That was his plan, to wipe out the Christ child. Let's just kill all male children born two years of age. So that must have been there had been some time lapse up to the age of possibly two years old. All of this points to something for us, that the Magi or the wise men had been traveling for some months, for some period of time. We understand from searching through the Scriptures, probably some 800 to 1,000 miles just to get to Jesus. So let's ask another question. How many wise men were there? There could have been any number of wise men. We know what our Christmas cards tell us. We know what our little... Uh, arrangements that we have in our house tell us that we, that we set out every year. We assume it's probably three, but the truth is there could have been any number of, of wise men. We assume it's three because of the three gifts or the three categories of gifts that were being presented. But let's ask something else about the wise men. Being so far away, if they were really 800 to 1,000 miles away, how did they even know that there was Messiah to be born? Well, let me tell you, they were aware of the promised Messiah from their former leader, Daniel, and from the oracle of their founder, Balaam. You can find the roots of all of this in the book of Daniel. It even goes back as far as the book of Numbers, if you want to do the research on it. Under Daniel's leadership and influence, many of them had no doubt turned from their paganism to the worship of the true God. However, even though they knew something was happening, they were unaware during Daniel's leadership, that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem because Micah's prophecy about where the Christ child would be born was received many years later and many miles away back in Israel. So the intention of the wise men was to seek the Messiah in order to worship him. They knew to make their journey because of an appearance of the Shekinah glory of God. You may say Shekinah, whatever, uh, wherever you put the emphasis on which syllable. The Shekinah, that light, the, 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 that pillar of fire that they followed. The same pillar of fire led them from Jerusalem, once they got to Herod, right over to the house in Bethlehem where they found the Christ child. Herod's response was to seek to destroy the Messiah by any means possible. Now, to put this into context we see that the events of Matthew chapter 2 are, are really much more significant than what our Christmas cards tend to uh, portray with, with the wise men and the, what we see that is there. And I discovered something incredibly interesting to me. It may bore you to tears, but it's fascinating to me. 
That is this, that the wise men, in, in worshiping the Messiah, they reveal a prophecy of their own in their choice of gifts. All of this that I'm about to tell you points to me to the magnificence of the plan of God in sending Christ to the earth. Look at the gifts that they brought. They brought gold, an obvious gift for a king and a common gift for a king, That's which would be often given to a king. They brought frankincense. This is obviously an incense, the burning of which represents prayer. Frankincense is an incense used by priests and indicates the priestly nature of the Messiah. See the significance of each of these gifts. They brought myrrh, a fragrant perfume used in the embalming of bodies. The inclusion of this gift can be seen as prophetic of the death of the Messiah. So we have this. We have gold, a kingly gift. We have frankincense, a priestly gift. And we have myrrh, a prophetic gift. These three gifts together underscore what was to be the Messiah's threefold eternal office as prophet, priest, and king. My guess is that the wise men just arbitrarily picked out something that they would bring as a gift. But look at the magnificence of the plan of God. That even in bringing their gifts, they would affirm in doing that something that was probably beyond their comprehension. They would have had no reason to have known that. They just brought gifts and presents. But in so doing, they were affirming that which would be the threefold eternal office of the Messiah. He would be the prophet, the one who brings the truth of God. He would be the priest, the one who enables others to enter into the presence of God. And he is the king, the one to whom God has given the power and dominion forever and ever and ever. Somebody say hallelujah. He is prophet, priest, and king. Some of you folks that are my age, uh, thereabouts, you know your hymns, will remember singing an old hymn written by Fanny Crosby entitled, Praise Him, Praise Him, Jesus, Our Blessed Redeemer. You know, I think how many songs we sang that many of the words, we just sang them by rote, we learned them by syllable, and we just kind of, you know, we just bellowed them out, but we didn't really understand what we were singing. There was a part of a verse in that song that says, Hail Him, Hail Him, Prophet and Priest and King, and that's our Jesus. And the wise men were a part affirming all of that. So when Jesus is born, a stir begins, just as it does today. You know, mention the name of Jesus in any typical secular environment, and you're going to anger some people. You're going to upset some other people. That's what happens when you mention the name of Jesus. A stir begins to happen. And as soon as he's born, before he has spoken a word, before he has performed one miracle, before he has proclaimed a single doctrine, as soon as he is born, it's amazing to see the stir that takes place. And at this point, you begin to see infinite power in the infant Savior. There is infinite power in the infant Savior. And now this baby is beginning to set an entire city, a kingdom, all of Rome on its ear. And they're wondering, what, what, is, what is happening can you imagine with me just what the atmosphere must have felt like? How did they know something is taking place? You and I have experienced that 
coming into either some kind of season. Something just feels different in the air. You can't even define what it is. Something is about to happen. I've heard many people talk about having that sense. I don't know what something's about to happen. Also, he makes a stir in all of nature. Stars are doing things that they would not normally otherwise be doing. And those who are far away, speaking of these wise men, begin to feel, I don't know, something wonderful is happening. And no sooner is he there in his utmost weakness as a newborn baby, a newborn king that is already causing a stir and he's already be reigning right in the place where people are plotting to kill him. And so far he's not said one thing. He's just a baby in a manger. Not a crown on his head. And people are still worshiping him. He's not said one thing to upset the crowds or the religious leaders. And they're already trying to kill him. What we are seeing, folks, is the greatest mission that has ever taken place, and that is the redemption of man by God. And so the stir that started that night in Bethlehem has continued for the last 2,000 years. If you'll stay with me for just a few minutes, I want to talk about two groups of people, and then we'll be dismissed this morning. Two groups of people that are all part of our text of this Christmas Sunday morning. First, the Magi, the wise men. And secondly, we're going to discuss the scribes and the religious leaders. Number one, our first group. Just two groups we're going to talk about. Those who are far can get near. How many are thankful today? Those who are far can get near. These men, these magi, are coming from Babylon. They are the wise men, the educators, the scientists. And they're coming from such a great distance, and yet they're coming all the way to find the Christ child. And here's what's amazing. Regardless of what Bobby said a while ago about him thinking this is the most wonderful time of the year, how many know for all, that's not true for all men. For all, it's not always for all men that it's the most wonderful time of the year. And it starts on Black Friday. <laughs> when things just get completely out of hand and become chaotic. I want to know, did anybody actually go shopping on Black Friday? Not one, yeah, three people, two people raised your hand. Okay, we'll be dealing with liars at the end of the service, okay? <clears throat> the Brits have done an interesting study on people shopping on, and Black Friday on both men and women. They did this study in the malls and shopping areas around London and reported their findings in a well-known London magazine newspaper. They took the heart rate of men and the heart rate of women while they were shopping. They did this study on hundreds of men and discovered that the heart rate of men, this is what the study says, folks, it's not my words, heart rate of men aged 20, 29 to 72 while shopping, at least in this environment, like a Black Friday environment, is the heart rate, the same heart rate of that of an F-16 fighter jet pilot as they're flying into battle. The heart rate of men was so elevated and so intense as they walked through the mall. It's just going up and down, going, going crazy. They did the same test on women. And they discovered that the heart rate for women never changed <laughs> one bit. 
and they're proud of it. <laughs> just as if nothing had ever happened, just a normal day, just what they do. So you got the fighter pilot and you got the normal. So you have to begin to wonder with these wise men, how in the world did they ever make it 800 to 1,000 miles all the way from Babylon to Bethlehem? They're coming to the grand opening of the Savior of the planet, and God calls three men and not three women. <laughs> women might have showed up with better gifts. They would have had diapers and bottle warmers and pacifiers. <laughs> and they would have cleaned the house. Amen? And we know for sure this. They would have at least asked for directions, right? Yeah, I knew that would excite you. <laughs> but you see, God wanted to enhance the miracle, and so he sent three men nearly a thousand miles to get to the Savior. Now that's a miracle, folks. That's a miracle. <laughs> we must remember that these guys came from a very powerful Babylon to Bethlehem. And they didn't come by planes, trains, or automobiles. They came by walking, and we assume camels were involved. And historians tell us they wouldn't have come alone, but they would have had a, a complete entourage with them, and that entourage could have been up to as many as several hundred people with them. Now just imagine the provisions needed for these magi, these wise men, and the entourage for a journey that could be 800 to 1,000 miles. Just imagine that. And think of the obstacles. Bobby referenced this a while ago. He was talking about Mary and Joseph getting from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Think about the wise men getting 1,000 miles from Babylon to Bethlehem with all of these people with them. The obstacles to get there to the Christ child. Think about, the, obviously they had to have faced snow. They could have faced rain, wind, cold. And you and I both know if we have any of that here in Texas, we shut everything down, right? Am I telling the truth? Some of us, if the temperature drops below 50, we can't even get to church on that Sunday. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Dan, you've stopped preaching, gone to meddling. I know that's coming. But this is the truth. And I, Becky and I lived up in the Midwest for many years, all the first part of our lives, and we dealt with snow much more than down here. We come down to Texas with the exception of last year. That was an anomaly, folks. We get a little skip to snow. Have you noticed everything closes in Texas? Everything shuts down. But these men went through all kinds of obstacles to make the journey all the way through the desert to meet Jesus. A thousand miles against their whole Babylonian culture that was so polytheistic. They were breaking every norm of their culture just to get where Jesus was. Nothing was going to hold them back. And they made it through every one of these obstacles just to get to Jesus because here's the truth that I want you to walk away with. Those who are far can get near. I said, those who are far can get near. The furthest away found their way to get to where Jesus was. So put yourself with me. Put yourself in that moment with me for just a second. Go with me there. When they arrive, after they've traveled a thousand miles, and here they are standing in front of the Christ child. Have you ever wondered this? wonder if they were disappointed. I wonder... What were their expectations? You know they had to have had some expectations. I mean, there was no castle. There was no crown. He had no bodyguards. He did not have his own entourage. And for the first time, they see him. Something has driven them all this way. 
these educated men from the Far East, scientists of that age. That's what Babylon was known for. And what a contrast to scientists that we have today. A thousand miles, no castle, no entourage, no army behind him, at least that they could see. Now they see the Christ child and something within them says the first order of business is that we are to bow before him. Something in their soul. I can't even imagine what has driven them to make such a journey with all of the obstacles and all the things we've just talked about. But something in their soul lets you know that they were not disappointed. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates there was any kind of expression that says, we came all this way just for a toddler. And here's the part that I love. Here's the part I want you to listen to. Before they presented their gifts, and I direct you to verse 11 if you have your Bible open. They fell down and worshipped him, and then they presented their gifts. I love the fact that before they presented their gifts, they fell down and worshipped. Let me tell you something, church. God is not looking for our gifts first. He's looking for our worship. He's not looking for you to show up and say, here's what I can do for you. This makes me think of 37 years ago this spring, the spring of 1978, was when Becky and I came to interview for the position of music pastor at what was then Northside Assembly of God Church, this place. And we were to be interviewed by the senior pastor, Des Evans. And in my opinion, you know, I had been interviewed. We had interviewed a couple of other places. You know, we were very young then. We had uh, we interviewed a couple places, and I had been interviewed by people who knew how to interview. They did it all right. They asked all the right questions. And I want to tell you this, and I say this cautiously, but it's important that you understand this component of my story. And that is this: I had grown up in an environment where I literally accepted the idea that your worth and your value and your function as a minister of music was only if you could make the senior pastor look good. Now, that sounds a little negative the way I present it, but I bought into that, and I, I understood that, and that you're just supposed to, that your whole job, your whole worth is to make the senior pastor look good. And so, I finally, I'm staying in the home of John and Theta Hall in Bedford, and so finally the day comes when Des is going to take me to lunch, and he takes me along with another brother from our church. Many of you remember M.F. Martin. We went to a place to, uh, to eat lunch that day. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I had come three or four days early just to hang out and see the place. And Becky was working at a bank still up in Illinois. And she wasn't going to be able to get off until the weekend. She would come down later. Before that lunch, I called Becky. I said, sweetie, this place is a disaster. <laughs> they have this horrible sun-kissed orange carpet. I don't even want you to get on a plane. Don't even bother coming down. This was before the lunch that morning. You know, I, you know, I can't figure anything out here. Nothing looks normal. Nothing looks, you know, it just doesn't look, it just doesn't look right. That's what I said. Then I went to lunch with Des and M.F. Martin. And I got exposed to some things that I had not heard before. I began to experience a spirit that was, that was new to me, or the expression was new to me, for sure. Something different happened. And so, 
we were together quite a while, then Des drives me back to the home of the people who's, where I was staying. We sit out in front, and I'm thinking, you know, Pastor, you're not asking any of the right questions. He just wasn't asking any of the right stuff. He needs to find out how, that I can play the piano. He needs to find out that I can direct a choir. He needs to find out that I, you know, my, my list of stuff. And I'm going to be honest with you. At 24 years of age, my primary concern in that interview was to put my package of stuff right here, and this is what I wanted you to see. It's what I wanted him to see. Here, this is it. This is what I present. Here's my gifts. This is the me you need to know. And I can't tell you how it happened. I can just tell you this is the experience that 37 years later still lives with me. It's as if Des, sitting in that car that day, took that like it had a little handle on it, picked it up, and said, okay, that's nice. Now let me see you. And I remember thinking, no, 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 no. This is what you need to see. Because this is the part that should matter the most to you. And Des would say, it's great. Now let me talk, let's, let me meet you. No, you don't, you don't want to meet me. You want to see my gifts. That's what you need to see. That's what needs to be the most important. That was a life-changing moment for me. In ways that are so personal to me and so deep within me, I can't even share the depth of it with you today. It changed my life. All I can tell you is my wife thought I was schizophrenic because after lunch I called her. I said, get on the plane and get down here right away. <laughs> what? Just do what I said. Just get on the plane and get down here. <laughs> Let me tell you something. He's not looking for your gifts first. He's looking for your worship. Some people will say sometimes, oh, I heard this famous athlete he, he gave his heart to Jesus. Just imagine how much value he will be to the kingdom. Well, I'm glad he got saved, but guess what? God doesn't need his athletic ability. Or a famous actor or an actress who we find out had some experience with Jesus, and we think, oh, that's going to be so great. They will have so much to give. and have No, no, no. The Lord doesn't need their resource. He is not interested in anything you have. He's not interested in anything that I have. He's not interested in, in all the money that a famous athlete or a famous actor has. He doesn't need it. He can do what he needs to do without the resource. He did it with 12 fishermen. He doesn't need professional athletes or famous actors to do what only God can do. Listen to me. I'm not against athletes. I'm not against actors. I'm just telling you that God is well enough inclined to get the word out regardless of the media that we want to use. He doesn't need all that stuff that we think is so valuable. Hear me carefully, church. I wish I could put a filter on this for you, but I'm going to give it to you straight. The only contribution you bring to your salvation is your wicked, sinful heart. The rest of it is Jesus. Only Jesus. That's all you've got to bring. So before you pull out all the stuff that you think you've got that's so valuable to God, put it back in your pocket and kneel down and worship the Savior of the world. Don't tell him what you've got. Tell him who he is and that he is the only one worthy to receive the praise, the only one worthy to receive the worship. I don't care how good you sing. 
I don't care how good you might be able to preach. I don't care if you are number one in sales in your company. That's terrific happy for you. Put it back in your pocket and kneel before the Savior of the world. That's what the wise men did. Yesterday, Becky was working. She works in retail this time of year, long, long, long hours. <clears throat> and she had sent me to the post office to um, mail a package off to my mom of some Christmas things that she had prepared. <clears throat> and uh, I did that, and I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen in a while, someone that runs in completely different circles, been involved in music ministry over the years. And I had not seen this person in maybe six, seven months. I run into him occasionally. And I saw him, and we literally stood in the post office for probably 30 or 45 minutes just catching up. We know so, have so many friends in common. And I began to hear his story of what's happened in the last six months. And I, can I just tell you, my heart broke for my friend. It, it, just, it just literally broke. Nothing about his story was was great. He's no longer in ministry where he was. It was not necessarily a pretty exit. I know one side of the story, but it was not necessarily a pretty exit. Talked about other issues that are taking place that were not good. <clears throat> Began to share with me some situations in other churches that were not great. And this is a man who's he's, he's not a complainer. He's not a negative guy. He's really a prince of a man, and I count him as a friend. But I left there thinking, oh, my goodness. Oh, my, 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 my. And my heart was heavy. And I uh, headed back, and, <clears throat> and I just left a message for Becky to call me when she had a break. And, and she called, and I had to try to, she had short time, and so I had to try to quickly tell her about the conversation that I had experienced. And I just said, you know, my, my heart's just breaking for this guy. I, I just, I said, you know what, Becky, I know we've got problems. We don't live in perfect circumstances. We don't. I, I, I know we have issues. I know there's, you know there's things, weight that we bear in the church, and that we, we always have certain things that are just kind of like right in front of us that we're dealing with. I, I understand all that, and I come home. I'm able to share that with her, and uh, we pray together over many of the issues, and, and I just, I say, I know we have all that, but the truth is, you know what? We are blessed. We're so incredibly blessed. And I said, I just, it's, it's just, this conversation has been just such a reality check for me. You know, there have been a couple of discouraging things taking place in the last few days. And, and they kind of come in with weight on me. And I felt that. And I, it was easy for me to kind of get in my little pity party. Then, and don't look at me like that. You have them too. <clears throat> and our conversation was hurried. But she said, you know, Dan, she said, <laughs> she said this. She said, you know what I prayed on the way to work today? She said, I pray that God would keep us broken and humbled before him because that is the only way to live. And I didn't tell her this because she was in a hurry and, it, you know, and she was being so tender and raw in that moment. But I want to say, dear God, girl, don't pray that. God might take you seriously. <clears throat> I didn't say that. But you better be ready if you say, God, keep us humble. Lord, keep us broken before you. And you better mean it. Because <laughs> God has the ability to do that. But can I just tell you, 
You can go to all the classes in the world as you want to. You can go get seven steps to this and 12 steps to that. And, and thank God there's some things that help people. But the way to live this Christmas season is just like the Magi, broken and humble before the Lord. Lord, I've got nothing to bring. I've got nothing. But you are the one who's given me everything that I have. And Lord, we, we just get ourselves so built up and we get so concerned, consumed about climbing the ladder and, and being all this and being all that. But the only way to live is to say, but I bow before you, Jesus. I recognize that you are the only one worthy of the praise. Every breath I draw is because you give it. Everything I have is because it has come from your hand. And I bless you. I bless your mighty name. If anybody agrees with that, would you just put your hands together and help me bless the Lord? The ones that were so far away found their way to Jesus and they came near. And you know what? My guess is that sitting in this house today are people who say, you know, Dan, I I feel a thousand miles away. And I want to say, good, you're in good company. Because these men got all the way to Jesus and they were a thousand miles away. You may be sitting here saying, I feel so far from God. How can God ever forgive me? You don't know what I've done. I feel so far away. Listen, I'm here to tell you, based upon what we've read in our text this morning, those who are far can get near to him. The Bible even says he is near to us. He's made himself known to us. Whether you're in the balcony, you're the main, on the main floor, or you're listening to this on our website, it doesn't matter how far you feel you are from God. He's closer than you think he is because those who are far can get near. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <clears throat> but the most dangerous group, and I'll close with this in a minute, the most dangerous group in this story is Group number two. I want you to see this with me, and I'm going to just touch on it quickly. The Bible says the Magi from the east arrived, and here's what it says. Wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was so deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And this is the part that is sobering, because while the far can get near, those who are near can be ever so far away. The far were 800 to 1,000 miles away. And Herod looks to those who are close by, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them, according to our text here, the religious Jewish leaders, he asks them this question, he says, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And without batting an eyelash, without saying, wait a minute, let us look it up. Hang on, we need to Google that real quickly. Without any of that. They knew it off the top of their head. And you'll have to notice with me that there is no pause between the question and the answer. In verse 5, they say, oh, in Bethlehem, in Judea. uh, You know what the prophet wrote? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be shepherd for my people Israel. They knew the answer. They knew that 700 years prior in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the prophet prophesied that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah, of the Christ. 
But folks, the amazing part is this. You look at the Magi journey, which was almost a thousand miles from Babylon to Bethlehem. From Jerusalem, in verse 1, to Bethlehem, verses 5 and 6, is five miles. So those who are far away get to Jesus. And yet the ones who know the Bible... The ones who know the location of the passage, who knew it all by heart, the religious people were so close to where the Redeemer was born, and yet they never even made one move. They knew the scriptures, they could quote them, and yet something happened to them. They knew the facts, but they never experienced it. They could sit in a church service and hear the music. Maybe even experience the excitement of what's happening. But hear me carefully this morning. It's one thing to be in a service. It's a completely different thing to be in Christ. You can be in church and not be in Christ. You can sit here week after week and know all the verses because you grew up with them. Know all the songs by heart. And never experience Jesus and the transforming power that he's come to bring to you. That's what happened to these men in group number two. So close, but they missed Jesus. To sing songs and show up regularly, maybe even write a tithe check, and never experience Jesus, never fall down before him. Dear friend, you've missed something. So close, and yet so far away. Some of you are only rows away from a salvation experience, but instead of walking forward, you'll walk out the door thinking because you were in church, you've experienced Jesus. No, you've experienced a choir, you've experienced a preacher, you've experienced music, but the only way to experience Jesus is when you kneel before him, when you bow before him, and when he shows up in your heart, and that's what he's come to do. The most famous clock in the world that millions walk by, which is next to Parliament and next to Westminster Abbey, is a clock called Big Ben. And just like when you have friends who visit the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you take them to see all of our famous sites around here, Billy Bob's, whatever. (laughs) When you go to London, people will always want to go to Parliament, Westminster Abbey, and to hear the great chimes and the bong of the Big Ben clock. As millions of people listen to it every single day, they walk by it, but they never listen to what it's playing. Every day on the hour, Big Ben not only begins to chime the hour that it is, but the music that it has played every day for all of these years that it has been in existence is this. I know my Redeemer lives by George Frederick Handel. And millions walk by it and don't even hear that he's calling out to them. Every day, every hour, they hear the music, I know my Redeemer lives. And they walk away. So close and yet so far away. 
And some of you sitting in this sanctuary today are in that same situation in your spiritual walk. You're so close, but yet you're so far away. You figured out how to get to church. Maybe you even participate in some things now and again. But you've not really come to that moment where you bow your knee and bow your heart before the Savior of of the world and humbled yourself before him. The wisest men in the world bowed before him and came from the greatest distance. But the most religious who were close in proximity just got dull. The most learned men went through every obstacle to get to him. Made the longest journey that that we could imagine and found the Christ child. But the ones who knew the scriptures by heart, they knew all the passages, knew the location of the birth of the Messiah. The ones that wouldn't even pause when asked the doctrinal question, where is the the, the Christ child to be born? Uh, Bethlehem and Judea, you know what the prophet said. Yet they wouldn't even go. We would say today, wouldn't even cross the street. So what was missing in that second group? What's the component in their thinking and in their heart that is so tragically missing that would keep them from saying, shouldn't shouldn't we check this out? What if it's real? How did they completely miss that? Their situation was this. Their dullness was stronger than their curiosity. Some are listening to the music in this house and literally, like Big Ben, can walk right by it, toss it off, walk right out these doors, go on with your day, and never come to encounter the very one who can literally change your life and redeem you. You're so close that by the way you walk out these doors, you make it clear that you're so very far away. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Lord Jesus, help us today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. I'm so thankful that it does. There's never been a better day than today for someone to come to bow before Jesus. Very clearly today, I'm inviting the far to come near. Those who feel estranged, those who say, Dan, I am a thousand miles away from God. If that's you, good. You're in the best possible place. I'm inviting you. You can get to Jesus today. He's closer than you think. And I'm encouraging today those who are near, those who hang around the place, to not be dull. So I'm asking, who, is, who wants Jesus to change you today? If there is anyone in the house that's saying, Pastor Dan, you know what? I recognize there's a measure of truth in what you've said today. And I just, I want you to pray for me. I'm not trying to make a spectacle of you, but I just want to know, is there anyone I can pray for? Whether you say, I am part of the group, the first group that's far, and I want to come near. Or you're part of the second group that says, I have been near, but I've allowed myself to become dull. If that's true for you on this Christmas Sunday, who would raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me?